Well, good morning again. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 89. Uh, Psalm 89 will be our sermon text for this morning. And before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we just again pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to comprehend and hearts to receive the glory of your grace in Jesus. We pray that you would pour out your spirit on us to that end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 89. A Maskeel of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted for our shield belongs to the Lord our King to the Holy One of Israel of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said I have granted help to one who is mighty I have exalted one chosen from the people I have found David my servant with my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him my arm also shall strengthen him the enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. 
I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness to the skies. But now... You have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruin. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is, for what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, And how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. It is easy to become bitter. It's so easy. In fact, I can give you three easy steps to bitterness. Step one, have unrealistic expectations about life. Nourish those expectations with empty promises. Believe everything should always go your way. Step two, experience reality with its many disappointments. Face life for what it is. Move from unreal expectations to the experience of disappointment. And then step three, meditate on those disappointments. Meditate on the gap between expectation and experience. Sense that these things will never get better, that there's nothing to be done, and stew over it. Bitterness is sure to follow. This feeling that life hasn't come through. You, You felt you were promised or that you deserved or that you had earned and life didn't pay up. You begin with the promise of a knight in shining armor and you end up a single mom divorced with five kids. 
You begin with the promise of you can be anything you want to be and you end up with a job that you can't stand that barely pays the bills. Life didn't treat you the way you thought it should. Bitterness is the easy result. Now, there's an especial danger of bitterness in the church. Uh, it, it begins with unrealistic expectations of what God has promised. And it ends with bitter disappointment in the experience of reality. Well, this morning I want to talk about a, a, a third way, neither unrealistic expectations nor bitter disappointment, but longing for resurrection. Our psalmist this morning was surely tempted to bitter disappointment, but that's not actually what we see. We see longing. And longing and bitterness are not compatible. Uh, bitterness normally comes in when longing dies. We're going to look at this psalm uh, basically three times. And first, we'll look at Israel's longing. And second, Jesus' longing. And finally, our longing. First, Israel's longing. Uh, the logic of the psalm is easy to follow once, once you see the structure. It begins with a, a hymn to God's steadfast love and faithfulness in verses 5 through 18, followed by an oracle about God's covenant promises to David in verses 19 through 37, and then it ends with a lament in verses 38 through 51. And yet before that, uh, in the first four verses, the psalm begins with an introduction which, which actually ties the first two points together. Verses 1 through 4 say this, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And notice already in these first four verses, we actually have the first two main points of the psalm. God's steadfast love and faithfulness, which are going to be talked about in the hymn. You see that in verses 1 and 2. And then God's covenant promises to David in verses 3 and 4. But I want you to notice something else, right? That, that these are tied together in these four verses. In verse 1, the psalmist will sing forever and make known God's faithfulness to all generations. Then in verse 4, God will establish David's offspring forever and build David's throne for all generations. Right? These words act as what is called an inclusio, kind of bookending the introduction, tying it together. The idea being that God's steadfast love and faithfulness are particularly shown in his covenant promises to David. There's actually a second inclusio of sorts. Verse 2 says God's steadfast love will be built up and his faithfulness established. And verse 4 says David's offspring will be established and his throne built up. Uh, again, the point is that God demonstrates his steadfast love and faithfulness by establishing David's offspring and building his throne. Now, this is going to cause problems by the end of the psalm. Uh, there's going to be a tension just here at this point, and so the psalmist is setting us up. He wants us to see the tension that is coming. But first, the hymn, God is Faithful. 
The words steadfast love and faithfulness are each in this psalm seven times. And it's clear that this is the theme of the psalm. Steadfast love is, is just that. It's a kind of devoted kindness, a kindness that lasts through whatever happens. And one commentator defines faithfulness as consistency between what someone says, means, and does. So it's a matter of integrity within oneself and therefore faithfulness to our promises and to others. And the idea is that God's love is not fickle and failing. It's not here today and gone tomorrow. Uh, there's no question as to whether he will love me one moment and then stop loving me the next. His love is steadfast. And, th and the reason his love is steadfast is because he is faithful, right? He means what he says. If he says, I will love you, that means he will love you forever and ever. He keeps his word, which means his promises are sure. Now, in this hymn, uh, in verses uh, 5 through uh, 17 or 18, uh, we see the faithfulness of God first praised in heaven, verses 5 through 8. The angels praise God for his faithfulness. Why? Because no one, not even the angels, with all their power and glory, have the power and faithfulness of God, verse 8. In this hymn, we also see the faithfulness of God worked out in power in creation, verse 9, as God rules over the chaotic nature of the world. And then in redemption, verse 10. Uh, Rahab, by the way, there in verse 10, Rahab is, is both the Old Testament name for uh, a serpent or dragon who symbolizes or embodies the enemies of God's people and is another name for Egypt, who is kind of the prototypical, prototypical enemy of God's people. And so God's faithfulness is worked out in defeating the enemies of his people. That's what verse 10 is getting at. God's faithfulness is also worked out in his rule. Verses 11 through 14, all things are his. Verses 11 and 12, and by his power, verse 13, he rules. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of that rule, but steadfast love and faithfulness are the fruit of it, according to verse 14. See, God rules the whole world to the end of his steadfast love and faithfulness, meaning God does all that he does in heaven and on earth in creation and redemption to display his steadfast love and faithfulness. And finally, God's steadfast love is displayed in his dealings with his people in verses 15 through 18. God's people exalt, they rejoice in his name, verse 16. So God exalts, that is, lifts up his people, verses 16 and 17. So God's steadfast love, it, it's praised in heaven, it's exalted in on earth, it's displayed in creation and redemption, it's manifested in God's rule and his blessing of his people. And the importance of God's steadfast love can be seen in, in a psalm like Psalm 136. Psalm 136, there are 26 verses where God's steadfast love is said to endure forever 26 times. And no other attribute of God gets that kind of press, right? Even God's holiness, which is in Isaiah 6, is repeated three times by the angels who surround the throne of God is still only repeated three times, not 26. Why is God's steadfast love so important? Well, think of the options, right? Option one, God doesn't love us. That's a terrible and terrifying thought, right? And an almighty being who does not care for me. 
It means at any moment I could be squashed like a bug and he would not give a second glance. Option two, God loves me, but his love is fickle. It's the daisy-fied version of love, right? He loves me, he loves me not. But if God's love can change, we can never be sure at any moment whether God truly loves us. We would inevitably live in a perpetual fear of uncertainty. But that is not the case with God's love. His is steadfast love, according to Scripture, a love which by definition endures forever. And so first we have this, this hymn celebrating God's steadfast love and faithfulness. God is faithful too. God has promised. The writer moves on to talk about God's covenant with David. And uh, the backdrop to these words is 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God makes a promise to David that God would establish his kingdom and build a house, a royal dynasty for David. And verses 19 and 20 talk about uh, God's choice of David. God exalted him from among the people, verse 19. And verses 21 to 27, then talk about the reign of David. His enemies will not overtake him. Verse 22, God will crush his foes before him. Verse 23, God's faithfulness and steadfast love will be with him. Verse 24, so that in God's name, David's horn, the symbol of his power, think of a ram's horns, right? David's horn would be exalted, lifted up. His reign would be over all the earth, his hand on the sea and the rivers. Verse 25, he would have a special relationship uh, with his God, verse 26, he would be the firstborn, which here means nothing about the order of his birth. David was the youngest of his brothers, but the phrase ha has become a metaphor for being chief, for being on the top, having the highest position, hence the parallel, the highest of the kings of the earth. God is going to exalt David over all. Finally, in verses 28 to 37, God talks about the offspring of David. And, and note the emphasis, verses 28 and 29, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Even if his children sin, verses 30 and 31, though God, God will punish them, verse 32, he will discipline them, still, verses 33 to 35, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Right? So God, God is going to keep his promise. How long, right? How long, we might ask, how long will God keep his promise? Well, verses 36 and 37, his offspring shall endure forever his throne as long as the sun before me like the moon it shall be established forever a faithful witness in the skies and you can see the emphasis right the emphasis is this god's promise to david is forever god will bless david's offspring forever god will establish david's throne forever and not just forever meaning a really long time but as long as the sun shines as long as the moon sits in the heavens god has chosen david god has given him the kingship god has promised that david's royal dynasty will last forever and let me say if god does not keep that promise that means god is not faithful 
his steadfast love to David would not be steadfast. If God does not keep his promise of a child of David to reign forever, you should reject the Bible and the God of the Bible. He would not be trustworthy or true. And of course, this brings us to the tension. So point one is God is faithful. Two, God has promised. Three, then brings us a question, when will God fulfill? With all of this buildup of praise to God for his steadfast love and faithfulness, together with his sure promises to David, verse 38 comes as a shock. It begins with the word, but now you. You are faithful. You have promised, but now you. Now, every verse but one from verses 38 to 45 has God as its subject. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are, are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Selah, which means pause and reflect. Stop and think about this. God is faithful. God has promised, but look at what God has done. Now, this is the point where most of us turn bitter. We say things like, God, I thought you said, or God, you, you promised and you didn't deliver. God, I can't trust you anymore. And maybe we don't say those things out loud, but our heart quietly turns cold and bitter as we experience the gap between uh, unrealistic expectations and bitter disappointment. Or, or worse, the gap between the promises of God and the lack of fulfillment in the present. But not the psalmist. He doesn't turn bitter. He, he turns to God. Right? I mean, first, the whole psalm, right? The whole psalm addresses God. Notice the, the frequent use of the second person address, you, right? The psalmist is addressing God throughout. And second, when things turn bad, when things go south in verse 38, the psalmist doesn't stop addressing God. He doesn't say, well, it's not God's fault. He doesn't say, the nations are the bad guys here. He doesn't say, God, I, I know you will, would do something if you could. He actually says, you have done this. He he actually confesses the sovereignty of God in the midst of his pain. And then, verses 46 to 49, How long, O Lord, will you hide your face forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is, for, for what vanity have you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? 
How long, O Lord? Where is your steadfast love? See, the psalmist doesn't turn bitter. He doesn't see his trouble as a sign of God's unfaithfulness. He cries out to God, how long? He doesn't doubt that God will fulfill his promises. He wants to know when. And it makes sense to, to take a, a moment and, and reflect on when this psalm might have been written. Or, or better, to what tragedy might it be responding? And the best and most likely answer is the exile. God promised David a king to sit on the throne forever. Then comes the exile. The temple is destroyed. Jerusalem's walls are torn down. And Judah's king is taken into exile. Where is the king in the line of David? Feel the weight of that for a moment. God is faithful. God has promised. But from all appearances, God has not come through. One Old Testament scholar described this phenomenon as living in the gap between promise and reality. Now, the hecklers will say, oh, God either doesn't care or he can't do anything about it. But of course, that's not the way promises work. And the very reason to give a promise is because fulfillment is not yet. If I have a gift in hand, I don't promise you a gift. I just give you a gift. I promise when the fulfillment is yet in the future. Hence the tension. Here's what another Old Testament scholar says about this psalm. He says, There is painful tension here, yet the spirit of the psalm is humble, never bitter. Instead of railing at the promise or explaining it away, it faces the full clash of word and event in an appeal to God to show his hand. Like an unresolved discord, it therefore impels us toward the New Testament, where we find that the fulfillment will altogether outstrip the expectation. And so the psalmist waits. He longs, he looks, he asks, he desires, and he waits. God is faithful. God has promised. When will God fulfill? That's Israel's longing. Second, Jesus' longing. According to the accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament, Jesus was a descendant of David. Matthew 1 gives his genealogy going from Abraham through David right up to Jesus. And when we move through the, the, the psalm with Jesus in mind, of course, most of it remains the same. God's faithfulness is God's faithfulness. It hasn't changed. God's promises to David are God's promises to David. They have not changed, but now we see that Jesus is a son of David. He is the offspring of whom God said, verse 29, I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If Jesus is truly a son of David and heir to the throne, then we should be expecting God to crush his foes and strike down those who hate him. The problem, of course, is when we look at Jesus' life, that's not what we see at all. In fact, we see Jesus' foes winning. Uh, sure, there's some witty back and forth at times. Jesus certainly outfoxes his opponents when it comes to his understanding of Scripture. But that just stirs up their hatred all the more until they finally snap. And then he's arrested and accused and tried and convicted and crucified. There's no winning there. There's no overcoming there. 
In fact, the best explanation for Jesus' crucifixion is verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. God the Father was full of wrath against his anointed, against his Messiah in Hebrew or his Christ in Greek. Now, why would that happen? I mean, God did warn David that if his descendants didn't obey, God would punish them. You see that in verses 30 to 32. And of course, God said the same thing through Moses about all of Israel, which is, explains the exile. The difference here is that Jesus did not forsake God's law, but he always did what pleased the Father. So why was Jesus cast off and rejected? Well, Isaiah put it this way. Isaiah 53, he said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. In Isaiah, this mysterious figure in Isaiah 53 is called God's servant, Isaiah 52, verse 13, and is often referred to by Bible scholars as the suffering servant. We'll look again at our text. Verse 20, I have found David, my servant. Verse 50, remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations. Psalm 89 is also describing a suffering servant. Here, clearly a descendant of David. So again, Isaiah 53, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. In the New Testament, Paul echoes this when he says Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, Romans 4.25. And Peter echoes this when he says uh, in 1 Peter 2.24 that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus bore in his heart the insults of all the many nations, but even more, he bore their sins. The cry of the psalmist in verses 38 to 51 is Jesus' cry. Jesus was overtaken by his enemies, but it was the very direct plan of God. Peter says of Jesus on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. When we look at the cross, we can say Rome did this, but we can say just as rightly God did this. You have done this, God, just as the psalmist says, you have done this. And of course, he did it to pay for the sins of God's people. And yet Jesus didn't give up. He, he wasn't bitter on the cross. He, he didn't say, God, you promised, but you haven't come through. That was what others tempted him to think, right? Remember, uh, people around the cross mocked him and said, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. Basically, they're saying, where's your God now? But Jesus didn't turn bitter. He turned to his father. In his darkest moment, he cried out to his God. He did say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he still didn't give up on his God, right? He, he, he then said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he entrusted himself to his Father. See, Jesus knew the Father's plan, that for the joy set before him, he had to endure the cross. And so he waited on the cross and in the grave. The question then to ask is not why, we know why he was delivered up for our transgressions. The question is, how long? As Jesus was arrested and falsely accused, how long? 
as Jesus was tried and falsely convicted, how long? As Jesus was mocked and beaten, how long? As Jesus was crucified and bled and died, how long? As Jesus was buried in the grave, how long? This gives verse 48 new meaning, doesn't it? Verse 48, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Stop and think about this. Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Can you see how beautiful this is? Right? The psalmist builds this tension between God's faithfulness, God's promises, and God's actions, and then he just lets it sit. Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Where is your steadfast love which you swore to David? How long, O Lord? And of course, one answer to that question is three days. That's how long Jesus laid in the grave before God the Father exalted him. Now, exalt is a word used multiple times in this psalm. The word means to be high, to rise, to lift up. And this is exactly what happened to Jesus. He was son of David, defeated by his enemies, lying dead in the grave. And then God the Father exalted him. He raised him up from the dead, brought him up into heaven, and seated him in the highest place at the right hand of the Father on the throne of God in heaven. And there he sits, son of David, on the throne forever. God is faithful. God has promised and God's promise is fulfilled. Everything the psalmist longed for has come true. Everything Jesus longed for has been fulfilled in the resurrection. Well, that brings us then finally to our longing. While the Father's promises to David have been fulfilled in Jesus and for Jesus, and while we have a share in those promises by faith, so that we know where Christ is, we will be, we nevertheless continue to live in the gap between promise and reality. Our expectation and our experience don't match up. We have God's promises on the one hand, but daily disappointments on the other. How do we walk through life without our head in the sand, pretending everything is fine, or bitterness in our hearts, having been beaten down by the hard things? Well, let me just say three things. Rejoice in God's faithfulness, remember God's promises, and long for God's fulfillment. First, rejoice in God's faithfulness. And by that I mean, first and foremost, God's faithfulness seen in Jesus. God has raised his son from the dead. He has proven his faithfulness in the cross and the resurrection. And we can know that God has come through and therefore will come through. So we know that God is faithful and that nothing, not even death, can undermine the faithfulness of God. Though we lie dead in the grave, right, our hope in Jesus is that God will bring us out again. God was faithful to his son. He will be faithful to us who are in his son by faith. So first, rejoice in God's faithfulness displayed in the cross and the resurrection. Second, remember God's promises. You know the problem with the thinking that if I follow Jesus, if I lay my hand on the Bible and believe, I'll be healthy, wealthy, smart, beautiful, and everything will go well in my life. What's the problem with that way of thinking? You know, the problem with that way of thinking is is not that people have too big a view of God's promises, but too small. 
right? They, they expect the best this world has to offer. But God promises us a better world. God promises not long life, but eternal life. Not rescue from death, but resurrection after death. Meditate frequently on the actual promises of God found in Scripture. Right? Read the Scriptures. Write down the promises. Memorize them. Know what God has promised you. Rejoice in God's faithfulness. Remember God's promises. Third, long for God's fulfillment. Remember the, the pattern and the path of Jesus. Death comes before resurrection, the cross before the crown, the, the tomb in Israel before the throne in heaven. Uh, Paul Miller calls this the J-curve, right? Because like the letter J, uh, Jesus went down into death before being raised up into life and heavenly glory. But the question is, what do we do when we are down at the bottom of the curve, right? Once you've rejoiced in God's faithfulness in the resurrection and remembered his promises in Christ, what do we do then? We long for God's fulfillment. And to do that, first you have to face the pain, right? We must not live pretending life will be better than it is. We can't live as if everything will always go our way. We can't live denying the reality of living in a fallen and broken world. To do so, right, would, would involve such a series of lies to ourselves that, that could not hold, right? That's when unrealistic expectations turn to bitter disappointment. And so we have to face the pain. But second, we turn to God in the pain. Uh, we're not Stoics, right? We're not just sucking it up. We're walking by faith. Turn to God in your pain. Cry out to him as the psalmist did. How long, O Lord? Remember your promises and your steadfast love. Turn to your Father as Jesus did in Gethsemane and on the cross. Know that he will hear you and that even if you should go into the grave, Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. That is not the end. And third, wait on God in the pain. If you remember where you are on the path of Jesus, you'll know that after death comes resurrection. Wait on God for resurrection. Uh, maybe better than that, again, Paul Miller uses the phrase hunting for resurrection, meaning we don't wait passively, we long, we look for the resurrection to take place in our lives. You know, there are some whose expectations are too small in the sense mentioned earlier, right? They just want the, the best this world has to offer, but God has promised a better world. But then there are others whose expectations are too small in another sense. And, and this is my temptation. I know the bigness of God's promises. I know there is a future coming that I cannot comprehend. But I don't expect anything until that day. But think about it. That wasn't true for Israel. Yes, after the exile, they had to wait. They had to wait for the son of David to come and sit on the throne in heaven. But before the resurrection and ascension, there was the return from exile in 538 BC. There was the rebuilding of the temple in 516. There was the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem in 444. God was at work in smaller and greater ways, even before Jesus rose from the dead. And in the same way, God is at work right now, bringing about many resurrections in our lives, giving us new life by His Spirit, but also working in our circumstances to bring blessings that anticipate the great blessing of resurrection life on the last day. 
And so rejoice in God's faithfulness. Remember God's promise. Long for God's fulfillment. Facing the pain, turning to God in the pain, and waiting on God to bring resurrection in His timing, both now and on the last day. Let's pray. Our Father, we... We, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his resurrection. We, we read the Old Testament and, and we find these tensions, real tensions. And we know there, there must be resolution. And there is in the person of your son. We thank you for Jesus who was both God and man, who came into the world, who bore our sin, who went into the grave, but then came back out again so that he can sit on the throne of his father David forever. Father, help us to remember your faithfulness to Jesus, to rejoice in your promises in Jesus, and to long, to long, to long for what you will do in our lives today and tomorrow and in eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.